Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Okay, I want to begin this morning by talking to you about uh, the book of Romans. Um, it's been three months since we've been in the book of Romans. And I want to remind you that we are in something like a river. The Mississippi River, the Amazon River. I don't know whether you have any of you ever wrapped a canoe. I've wrapped a canoe. Have you wrapped a canoe? And you know, it's like fire. You never know it's going to happen until the moment it does. And the minute it happens, you realize you were powerless, you know. And that speaks to the power of a river and of current. And I want you to think of the book of Romans as a river that is flowing, and it is irresistible. When I was a kid, I went to a camp up in Canada in northern Ontario, and the big thing you could do there was go into Port Sydney and go down the rapids. The rapids were about as wide as this church. The water was about three feet, two feet probably. But it was going over a smooth rock the whole width, and that rock and that current added up to, you better hold on to that steel cable that went across at the very top because the minute you left go, what happened was the water and the current just carried you instantly down the rapids. At the bottom was a huge whirlpool, so you had to work your way to the left. And people regularly drowned in the whirlpool. This is why we're better adjusted than all you young kids because we had danger as we grew up, you know. (laughs) So anyhow... (laughs) My parents came to visit. I'd been up there for a month or so, and when they came to visit, I wanted to show them me going down the rapids. I was probably nine years old. So showing off, I went out into the middle of the river and then thought I could stand up and let go of the cable. So I let go of the cable, and what happens is that river instantly shoves you, and your legs go out from under you, and I landed on my head on the rock. And then as I went down the rapids, I had blood pouring down my body, you know. And I could hear everybody on the shores going, oh, no, look at him, somebody help him, (laughs) you know. But it was just a skin wound, you know. And so they sewed me up. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is intensely like a river shoving us to think little of ourselves and to think much of God. Okay? And because we're sinful, we want it to be about ourselves. And the Apostle Paul is determined to tell us that God will be glorified. He starts the book out by slapping us around. And he basically is saying, you know, you think the wicked are sinful? They are. They're disgusting. But what about you, you know? You're against idolatry. Do you rob temples? You know, you who say that other people shouldn't commit adultery, you commit adultery. You that say that people shouldn't get married who are homosexuals, do you commit adultery? You know, and it's like at the beginning of the book, you're relieved almost when he says there is none righteous, not one. Because, you know, okay, we've got that out of the way. But then he goes into the process of how we 
come to faith and how we become Christians. And that process, guess what? It doesn't have anything to do with us. It has to do with God. He's relentless. He's like the Amazon River on it. He's just hammering, hammering, hammering home the fact that all is of God and it's so that only God will get glory, okay? We're now far enough in the book that we've gotten to a point where he feels like we have sort of gotten the point somewhat and he's going to stop and comfort us. Because if you walk with God, you suffer. All of creation suffers. We live in a fallen world. There's nobody who is outside the consequences of the fall. There's no tree, no rock. Everything has been corrupted by the fall. All right? And so he sees that he has to encourage us. You know how those of you who are children who have the privilege of having parents who actually spank you, you know that one of the sweet things about spankings is that they're over instantly, you know, one and done, right? And afterwards, such tender times with your father, because your father has simply given you what you had coming, but it's done, you know? And now the love and unity and sweetness of a father who loves his child is able to come, right? And so the apostle Paul's done the spanking, He's just whipped us, really. Whipped us with the words of God and the truths of God. And now he gets to the point where he says, all right, now I know things are difficult. And so if you look at Romans chapter 8, where we have arrived as of three months ago, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time. Well... It must be that this present time is suffering. All right? It's so sad today how in the Western world, Christians and non-Christians alike don't believe in suffering anymore. And so, you know, old people go into the hospital and they're going to take charge of their death. You know, they're going to have increasing dosages of morphine. They're going to stop eating. They're going to stop drinking. I'm in charge. I won't suffer. You know, and yet suffering is how God accomplishes the work that he has for us. And so Paul knows that Christians suffer. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. And then he refers to nature's suffering, the anxious longing of the creation, waits eagerly. So we suffer, nature suffers. And then he goes on, and says in verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. So, okay, look, we have suffering and we have weakness. Christians are not strong. Christians are so weak that we don't know how to pray as we ought, right? We can't even pray right. Any of you have that problem? Can't even pray right. And then we're told, don't worry, you're weak, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Why groanings? Why not chipper, happy, clappy? Because we're suffering and we're weak. And so the, the Spirit, when he prays precisely what should be prayed for us, it's groanings too deep for words. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Well, why would you need to say that unless things are weak and things are suffering and things are difficult? Then we get to verse 31 
right before our verse, and it says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? All right. Our text, I'm just going to keep reading from there. This is the word of God and is eternally true. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, I'm going to stop there, even though uh, it says through verse 35, we'll return. We're not even going to get to verse 34. Um, Well, we'll get to the first part of 34. And so this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart that is here will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the book of Romans is about God. And here, when we're finding uh, a discussion of opposition and of enemies and of charges and of convictions and of judgments, we're pointed back to God. Now, it makes no sense for us to read this text and to understand it if we don't have conflict in our lives, right? It makes no sense to assure a man that God is for him and no one can oppose him if this man has no enemies, right? Such words of comfort make no sense outside the context of hostility and conflict. The man who is at peace with himself and the world needs no comfort. He already has all the comfort he'll be given. Across his life, he carefully avoids taking risks or choosing sides. Are you with me? Having convinced himself that the slave is, in fact, greater than the master. Are you with me? He pats himself on the back for what is really his shame. That although they hated his master, they don't hate him. You all with me? You hear the quotes of scripture, right? And yet here the apostle Paul speaks to the church in Rome, what shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? The man without conflict, the thing we need to say to him is that complacency needs no comfort. Okay, complacency needs no comfort. Now, for the next few Lord's Days, we're going to turn to the most common enemies of God's sons. And when I say sons, that includes women. It's, it's a 
male inclusive, all right? God's son and daughters. We're going to talk about the most common enemies those who belong to God have. Let it be noted clearly that the normal Christian life is needing comfort because we have enemies. Okay, I want to say that again. The normal Christian life is that we need comfort because we have enemies. Now, who are those enemies? Who would bring a charge against us, okay? Well, start with the obvious one. The obvious one is Satan. We know that the Bible says that Satan is what? What's his name? One of his names is the accuser of the brethren. And so, of course, Satan is constantly accusing us. He's bringing charges against us, and he is condemning us. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not a cheap thing we say to not feel the weight of our sin. It's simply the truth because Scripture's revealed it. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. All right? So that's our first enemy. Our second enemy is the world. The world really does hate us. (laughs) You know, when I retire, which I'm going to do soon, I know my wife says, don't don't bring it up. I'm sorry, I just brought it up. You know one thing I'm going to be so relieved not to have to do? I'm going to be so relieved not to have to tell people who live in Bloomington that the world hates them because they're Christians. I mean, from the time I arrived here, I've been trying to beat that into our heads. Because what Christians believe, especially in a place like Bloomington, is that the world doesn't hate them because they're Christians. The world hates them because they're stupid. The world hates them because they're haters. The world hates them because they're racist. The world hates them because they're sexist. The world hates them because they didn't choose precisely the right word to say at precisely the right time. It's like, no, no, the world hates you because you belong to God. And so we just run all around trying to prove that we're really nice people to people that hate us. And, you know, knock your socks out. What does that get you? You know, Daniel, you, you, you tried to prove yourself to anybody lately, you know, up at the law school? Huh? Huh? Maybe some of your relatives, you know? Knock your socks off. What? That yeah, is a losing battle. You're a child of the king. And the minute you try to prove you're nice... And what a pathetic word that is. The minute you try to prove you're nice, their standards of what is nice will have just changed. And this is a life-consuming effort, right? will, Will you all understand if I tell you that preparing to preach this morning, I just gnashed my teeth at the... uh, bedraggled condition of Christians' flocks in America today. Because if there's ever a time in my life that I've seen more sheep without a shepherd and out there completely at the mercy of the wolves, it's right now. 
I've never seen it as intense as it is right now. And why do I say that? Well, because Christians all over the country today are trying to prove to pagans who hate them that they're nice. John Peoples, some of you remember John. He was a pastor, PCA pastor here in town, a dear friend. John Peoples used to say this. He used to say, God is not nice. Niceness is not one of his perfections. And if you remember him saying that, do you remember him saying that? Yeah. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you want to live by the moral standards of the world, they will be constantly changing. And if there's one thing I've learned in my life, it's when they insult Christians and you try to prove you're not what they just said you were, you're, you're a fool. There is no defense against being called anti-Semitic. There's none. It's the ultimate insult. You know, you're like Hitler. You know, you're anti-Semitic. And so, you know, you have guys, all they do is question America's foreign policy towards Israel. They're anti-Semites. There is no defense against being called a sexist. What do you have to do to prove you're not a sexist? You know, how about if I, like, transition? Well, no, then you even have, what's the name of the lady that wrote all those books? Yeah, what's her last name? Rowling, yeah, Rowling. You know, then she's going to, like, be offended that you, like, assimilated her sexuality or something like that, right? There is no way to prove, listen carefully, there is no way to prove that you are not a racist. If you were to set out to try to do it, what would you do? What is the charge that the world is making against all Christians today? It's that we're racist. And on the basis of what? On the basis of the fact that we are not calling for the defunding of all the law enforcement officers around the country. On the basis that we, I mean, honestly, what do we have to do to prove we're not racist? There's nothing you can do. There is absolutely nothing that you can do. And so what are you going to do? You're going to spend your life saying that there actually are charges that can be laid against you that are justified and that if you live the right way, then finally people will see that you're really like Jesus, nice. But of course, Jesus isn't nice. They don't even know Jesus. So you're going to spend your life proving you're not a racist, proving you're not a sexist, proving you're not anti-Semitic, proving that you think nature is God's good creation, proving that you like believe in sustainability. This is the world's morality. And it is absolutely false and it's absolutely hypocritical. You may not 
make the mistake of trying to prove, spending your life, wasting your life trying to prove that you are moral according to the standards of the world. Because they hate you, and they don't hate you because you're a racist, or you're a sexist, or you're anti-Semitic, or you don't love nature, you're not green enough. That's not why they hate you. So you say, well, why do they hate me? And I say, okay, Jesus actually talks about this, and here's why they hate you, okay? It's found in John, the 15th chapter, and it's after a very, very popular section. Oh, brother. You ready? I know you are, but I'm not. John 15, beginning with verse 16, Jesus says this. And we know the first statement. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you this I command you, that you love one another. That kind of has a feeling of familiarity to us, right? The first statement is a bit of a rude awakening, though. I mean, you have to admit it. You did not choose me, you know. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you. This is pretty authoritative, isn't it, right? But what you don't realize is what comes immediately next. Verse 18, smooth transition that Jesus chooses. He says, if the world hates you, he just talked about choosing us, us not choosing him. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Are you with me? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And I am telling you that this has been an exhausting work here in Bloomington to try to convince you not to prove to the world that you're nice. Not to prove to the world that you're not a sexist, you're not a homophobe. You can't win because the world doesn't hate you because you're a homophobe. The world first hated Jesus and then it hates those that Jesus has chosen. And so are you a child of the king? Listen, when you make this about you, I hate to tell you, but you're going against the flow of the book of Romans. <laughs> you know, ain't going to work. The Apostle Paul, let alone God's Holy Spirit, are going to carry you along. And it is about God. Do you remember that one of God's names is jealous? God actually names himself jealous. So you could pray to God, jealous. And God is jealous for his own glory. And one of the sad things about us as Christians today is that we are so intent in doing the very thing the book of Romans is written against, which is saying that we have had a part in our salvation. Are you with me? You know, we, there is something I've contributed, but here's what scripture says. 
it says, if God is for us, who will be against us? And then it says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And we focus on the goodies, you know, the, the chocolate chip cookie, you know, the peanut butter cookie. Who'll bring a charge? Yeah, yeah, who's going to bring a charge? But then the second half of it is against God's elect. And that doesn't feel so velvetini rabbity. God's elect. In other words, the reason that none of the charges stick, the reason that we're not indicted, has nothing to do with us. It's because before the foundation of the world, of the universe, God chose you. If you are a believer, it is only because God chose you before you ever existed. How can he choose you before the foundation of the world if he sees something in you and you say, well, he's omniscient, you know. He can see everything that's going to happen. And I say, listen, that's not what scripture teaches. And you say, yeah, but you know something? I don't like what you just said. And I say, what am I supposed to do? You want me to take a vote right now? How many of you want me to open up the word elect? And how many would you prefer that I move on? Okay? I mean, come on. Jesus says, you, what? Did not choose me. So which part of this you want to argue about? Choose? You want to argue the nature of choice, okay? How about not? Can we have a good argument about the meaning of not? You know, we once had a woman getting her doctorate in math, and she went out to a conference in San Francisco, and her particular, <laughs> her particular area of study, <laughs> Cornelia, was not theory. And so when she went out to the conference, I told everybody that Cornelia was out in San Francisco studying the things that are not. <laughs> Listen, the word not has a meaning. Okay? The meaning is clear. Jesus says, you did not choose me. And then it's clear, but I chose you. And then it's clear the world hates you because it first hated me and because I chose you. And so when we read our text, and our text says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? We should stop there and realize that the reason the world cannot bring a charge against us is because God chose us. And then it says, God is the one who justifies. So let's move on to the question of you feeling like, um, let's move on to the question of you feeling like it's not the world you're concerned about, it's not Satan, it's yourself. If you're in this church, you probably have some knowledge of the law of God. You have some knowledge that it is hopeless with you, that you are a lawbreaker. And so you think, well, maybe God chose me, but after God chose me, then I have to get to work. 
Because I have to, and you don't say it, but I have to prove myself worthy of being chosen. You know, I have to persevere. And his choice, his justification is of him. But persevering is of me, right? We have all these ways that we're squirrely and try to bring ourselves back into the equation so that we can sort of manipulate and press to digitate things. You know, you know, I looked at naked flesh yesterday, but I haven't looked at any naked flesh today. Not yet, and I'm going to go to bed quickly. Uh-oh, last week I drank too, but, the, you know. Uh, oh, no, I was angry at the children again, and my neighbor heard me, and because I live in Orchard Glen, that means my neighbor's somebody from church. Okay, listen, you cannot justify yourself. Are you with me? And this should be a relief to you. You're saved because God chose you. And you, it's not up to you to justify yourself. If you try to justify yourself with your mother, where does that get you? If she's a good mother, nowhere. (laughs) And then... Try to justify yourself with God. And I want to say this to you. You have two choices. You either let God justify you or you try to justify yourself. Are you with me? You don't have a third choice. Because all of us know that we have to be justified. All of us know there's none righteous, not one. And so what are you going to do? You're going to spend your life trying to justify yourself to all your pagan relatives and friends on Facebook? And so you just pedal as fast as you can to prove you're not racist and that Jesus loved and that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. And my ancestors weren't slaveholders. My ancestors fought. My ancestor, my grandfather lost his arm in the Civil War fighting for the North. And It's disgusting. You are a child of the king. You don't need to justify yourself to anyone. Because you can't. It is God who justifies Now listen, am I saying that it doesn't matter that there's racism and it doesn't matter that they're slaughtering the unborn? No, I'm not saying that. Every Christian has always been against the slaughter of the unborn, eh? Eh? Every Christian has always been against racism. I mean, what do you think the book of Galatians is about? (laughs) You know, circumcision was a placeholder among other things, for racism. You know, prove that you're really one of God's covenant people, right? You will not win because you can't justify yourself. And the sad thing is, if you give your life over trying to make yourself look moral to the reprobates around you who hate you because God chose you, You're going to be on your deathbed and you're going to have spent your life pulling petals off a daisy like a young girl who loves another boy but doesn't know if he loves her. And so she sits there and she pulls the petals off the daisy repeating what? He loves me. He loves me not. And depending upon which petal, which which saying, you're pulling the moment you die, 
Maybe you're saved, maybe you're not. Maybe you've persevered, maybe you haven't. Come on, people. If you belong to God, it's because he chose you. And now you live for him. You know how sometimes I sing songs, I'm sorry. But I live in music in my brain. And here's what this text is saying to us. It's saying, I only have eyes for you. We can't have eyes for anybody but Jesus. He's the one that bought us his blood. And God has seated him at his right hand. Where he sits, not standing. He done been seated (laughs) at the right hand of the Father. And he ever liveth to make intercession for you. Don't let the world press you into its stupid mold. Live for Jesus and realize nobody can bring a charge against you. Nobody can condemn you because God chose you, okay? Let's close with worship, more worship.